If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's podcast, we'll be discussing one of the milestones of the gay rights movement, the Stonewall Riots. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the event, when LGBTQ protests erupted outside New York's Stonewall Inn. Our World Histories editor, Matt Elton, spoke to the historian Chris Parks, whose research focuses on sexuality in 20th century America, about why the riots were so significant. Please be aware that some of the discussion of responses to the riot includes language that some might find offensive today. OK, so um, this summer marks the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, which is a thing that I think some people might have heard of and some people might not be so familiar with. Um, what would you explain it as? So Stonewall is the quick way of referring to the Stonewall riots, uh, which were a series of uprisings over three days in late June and early July of 1969 uh, in Greenwich Village of New York, uh, New York City. Uh, the Stonewall Inn was a bar, uh, a very popular bar for all sorts of different uh, people in uh, New York at the time, mostly gay men uh, and women, but also lots of trans people too. And in the early hours of June 28th, 1969, it was raided, uh, raided by the police. Not an uncommon occurrence uh, for uh, the Stonewall Inn, indeed for uh, many gay bars in New York City at the time. But this time... Uh, quite uncommonly, instead of the raid uh, going smoothly and all the patrons being filed out and dispersing, uh, a crowd formed and uh, at about 1.20 in the morning, they fought back. Uh, they started pelting the uh, policemen with coins and with um, cobblestones and bricks, uh, forcing them into the bar, um, terrified into the bar, and... Uh, started a riot. Uh, that riot went on all night, and then the next night the rioters came back, and the night after that they came back too. Maybe more importantly, though, that event, those nights of riots, uh, became an emblem for LGBT rights, uh, LGBT liberation uh, in the United States and across the world uh, from that moment on. Um, so you mentioned that um, this wasn't an uncommon occurrence. Mm -hmm. What was it that led to this specific incident then growing to be such a thing? So in the long term, there was a, a deep root or a, you know, a, a long history of uh, homophobia, of persecution and discrimination against uh, queer people uh, all across the United States. Uh, this was nothing new. Uh, and indeed, by the 1960s, there had been a period of about 20 years of intensifying persecution of queer people. Uh, during the uh, period of the Cold War, uh, gay men especially were hounded out, uh, well, gay men and lesbians, I should say, were uh, hounded out of the federal government uh, as in, uh, out of fears that they would be susceptible to blackmail by the Soviets. Uh, this is referred to as uh, by historians as the Lavender Scare, uh, just like the Red Scare was persecuting people with leftist leanings. Um, the specific events, so there was a long history of 
uh, persecution against queer people. There was also equally a long history of or, or of resistance to this persecution. Uh, as early as the 1950s, organizations began to spring up across the United States that were pushing back against the state repression, uh, protesting against the uh, firing of uh, gay men and lesbians from the federal government uh, and against uh, police harassment. Uh, those efforts, although very important for laying the groundwork for what came later, hadn't really uh, accomplished very much uh, by the 1960s. But in the 1960s, things began to change. Uh, they were changing all over the United States. This was the decade, after all, of uh, many kinds of liber liberation. This was the decade of women's liberation, uh, pushing back against uh, sexism and patriarchal discrimination. It was the decade of uh, a sort of crescendo of civil rights activism for African Americans. Uh, you know, the Civil Rights Act was passed in this decade, the Voting Rights Act. Uh, so too with uh, Hispanic Americans and indigenous Americans, they were all beginning to organize in a way that they really hadn't done before. Uh, young people were also protesting. This was the period of the protests against the Vietnam War or American involvement in Vietnam. So there was an energy of protest and liberation and pushing back against the established order and the, um, the, the manifestations of that established order, in this case, the police. More immediately, the things that led to the uh, Stonewall riots. So in, as, as I mentioned earlier, in uh, uh, New York City during the 1960s, uh, gay bars were raided all the time. And in fact, the uh, Stonewall Inn had been raided earlier that week on the 24th of June, 1969, the Stonewall Bar was raided again. Um, now, usually these raids didn't amount to much, partially because, and this was very true in the case of Stonewall, uh, there was complicity by the police with the owners of these bars, almost all of whom, the owners of the bars, I mean, almost all of whom were uh, uh, involved in the mafia. In late June of 1969, uh, there was an effort by the police to crack down on uh, these bars that were owned by the mafia. Some of that had to do with local politics. 1969 had been an election year uh, or was, was going to be an election year for uh, the New York mayoralty. Um, and partially because of that, partially because there was a desire to shut down some of these bars anyways uh, – an increased intensity of raids began uh, during uh, uh, late June of 1969. Uh, the specific officer or the, the, one of the officers uh, who organized this raid, a man named uh, Detective Seymour Pine, uh, decided that this moment, you know, the, tw the raid that was going to happen on the 28th of June 1969 was going to be big and it was going to shut down Stonewall for good. So he got more officers than usual. Uh, usually it would just be three or four. This time he had about eight or nine. Uh, he got agents from the Bureau of, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, which is a kind of a regulatory agency in the United States, um, as well as from the FBI. You know, lots of people were tipped off that would make this the raid that would shut down Stonewall for good. Um, and maybe for that reason, there was a little more intensity and pressure placed on the on the patrons at the time. At on the other hand, though, the, um, the, the patrons themselves, the people who were in the bar at the time, uh, fought back in a way that the police were not expecting. We should talk a bit about um, what life was like for gay people in America in the 60s. 
Um, what sort of experience of prejudice and discrimination would they have experienced in the years before Stonewall? So life for queer people prior to Stonewall uh, has kind of been told with a traditional story. Um, and the, the story basically goes like this, that life for queer people prior to Stonewall was unremitting horror, uh, that nothing went well for them. Uh, and there's a decent amount of evidence to corroborate that interpretation. Uh, there was, you know, homosexuality, homosexual acts were illegal in virtually every jurisdiction in the United States, uh, punishable with extremely harsh sentences, you know, 10, 15 years in prison. Uh, Homosexuality was considered a mental illness uh, by uh, you know various medical outfits. So uh, you know queer people were thought of not just as being sort of morally wrong for whatever reason, but as being sick, as being actually diseased in some way. And there was an intense social taboo around homosexuality for the medical reasons I mentioned, also for religious reasons, which had a deep root in American society. That's the traditional view of queer life prior to Stonewall, uh, it is by no means the only view. I think a more enhanced uh, understanding of what queer life was like acknowledges that uh, prior to Stonewall, there were, yes, there was oppression, but there was also resistance to oppression. There were, uh, as I mentioned earlier, efforts to organize, uh, you know, the homophile movement, the Mattachine Society, uh, they had organized, uh, the Daughters of Belitis had been organized all through the 1950s and 60s to try to push back against this. And and also in less uh, organized way, queer people existed in American society prior to Stonewall and they lived their lives just the way uh, that queer people do now. Uh, they went off and they made spaces for themselves. They uh, formed the bars or rather they went to the bars that became identified uh, as you know, being for their communities uh, in New York, but also in you know, hundreds of communities all across the United States um, and in you know, non-commercial establishments too. They uh, found places in, in the countryside, on beaches and uh, park, park grounds that were uh, places that they knew they could congregate and socialize and also informal places like house parties. So on the one hand, there was definitely oppression, discrimination, and quite a bit of harassment and, and indeed violence against queer people. But there was also efforts to push back against this and just the, the sort of unremarkable living of life in the midst of discrimination, but that nevertheless was a, a place and an experience of, uh, you know, just living authentically, even amidst uh, all, of the, all of the oppression around them. Some people think of Stonewall as being like this sort of single, this single event, whereas actually if we say there were things leading up to it, it's not like a thing without context. The, the, way, that, the way that Stonewall certainly has been written about and remembered uh, can sometimes overinflate its importance. People think of it as, uh, I mean, I think I even wrote in that uh, piece, uh, you know, that's accompanying this podcast, that Stonewall isn't just an event in uh, LGBT history. It's the event. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of historians wrote that way. There are even, you know, books and documentaries that are titled with, uh, that have titles for, like Before Stonewall and After Stonewall. And there's no doubt that it is or was a watershed moment. Something genuinely did change at, uh, you know, in 1969. Um, the tempo and the tenor of LGBT activism picked up in a way that, uh, frankly, was almost inconceivable beforehand. 
Um, and it also uh, carried on as well as revealed tensions within LGBT activism, uh, you know, between people who were much more radical. Um, that's what the riots tend to be associated with, a kind of radical effort to really change society quickly and more accommodationist points of view. And that's maybe the way to contextualize uh, Stonewall in, in response to your question. In the decades prior to Stonewall, in the 50s and the earlier 60s, um, the efforts to push back against harassment and discrimination against sexual minorities were modest and they were consciously very moderate. They were almost conservative in their outlook. The homophile activists of the 1950s and 60s deliberately projected an image of staid, regular, normal people who just wanted to be treated like everyone else because they were like everyone else. Stonewall kind of challenged that. Um, partially by being in no way conservative. It was quite literally a riot. Quite a bit of damage was done to the Stonewall Bar or the Stonewall Inn. Um, but also in terms of the rhetoric behind it. Stonewall was a moment not of trying to accommodate, not of trying to gradually adjust the police and the political structures of New York or generally uh, to be more kind to queer people, but of outright challenging them and saying, no, this harassment has to stop now. You have to treat uh, LGBT people with respect. Um, and if you don't, uh, we are not well. We are not going to take that harassment anymore. We will actually fight back against it rather than just sort of condemning it with uh, uh, polite words. What do we know about the specific people who were involved in the rioting? <laughs> so. This is one of the most interesting uh, aspects of the Stonewall riots, and it's mighty, it might even be one of the reasons why they happened. Uh, the people who participated in the riots uh, themselves and the people who attended Stonewall, you know, who went to the Stonewall Inn regularly, were a fascinating cross-section, an unusual cross-section of – uh, sexual and gender minorities in uh, the United States or rather in New York City at the time. Uh, the Stonewall Bar was rather remarkable for a few reasons. First of all, it was a place where there was a little more freedom to express oneself and, uh, than there were in other bars. Stonewall Inn was one of the few places where people could dance uh, you know, freely without being harassed by the bar staff. Um, rather remarkable when you think of it for a gay bar that you wouldn't be able to dance. But that actually was quite unusual because the laws were so strict about you know, even same-sex couples touching one another at the time. Um, it was also a place where a, a very diverse mix of people uh, came together. A lot of the bars in New York City catered to a kind of upper class, well-to-do, uh, predominantly white clientele. Uh, in the Stonewall... Upper class, white, well-to-do people did attend, but there were also lots of working class people. There were also lots of African Americans and Puerto Rican people um, who quite literally were not, would not be allowed into some of the, uh, the tonier bars. There were uh, drag queens. Uh, there were trans people. Uh, you know, a lot of them called themselves transvestites at the time, but we might today identify at least some of them as being uh, transgendered or, or uh, just somewhere along the trans spectrum. Uh, there were also you know, things that we don't really have anymore, uh, what were called flame queens at the time, which were people who uh, probably identified as male but did themselves up in a, in a rather more flamboyant way. Um, so there was a great diversity of people at the Stonewall Inn. 
And arguably, that's one of the reasons why the Stonewall riots happened. Because it wasn't, unlike in the in these more staid locations, there were people at the Stonewall Bar who had come from communities who had faced police harassment before and who had also been much closer witnesses to the efforts to push back against police harassment uh, than a lot of the more conservative and maybe more timid uh, people from well-to-do families. Uh, the in terms of specific people who were there, well, actually, we can see this in some of the uh, specific people that we know attended there. Uh, among the sort of well-to-do, connected, and uh, you know, white middle-class activist side, we had people like Craig Rodwell and Dick Leish who uh, were involved in homophile activism uh, at the time. But there were also people like Sylvia Rivera uh, and Martha P. Johnson. Uh, these were people who were. Uh, you know, they were women, trans women, uh, people of color who attended this bar, who thought of it as being their space as much as it was a space, uh, you know, that, that was owned by, uh, you know, uh, Leash and by uh, Rodwell. Uh, so you had a, a great diversity of people. You had people who were um, coming from many different communities who were involved in in. You know, the nascent LGBT activism at the time. Uh, also, people who had nothing to do with that, but who came in with their own experiences of resisting police uh, brutality, of resisting state oppression, and of knowing in different ways what it was like to be marginalized uh, and how to deal with that marginalization when, you know, you were being hauled off in a police van. How was the rioting uh, reported in the media? So there were a few different ways that the rioting was reported in the media. And this is, again, one of the fascinating things about why Stonewall became the iconic event that it was. Uh, the traditional media, uh, the mainstream media, I guess we'd call it now, um, whitewashed it. Uh, the New York Times had a story about police officers being uh, assaulted at a bar raid. Uh, and it was on like page 33 of the New York Times, way at the back, tiny story. And as the, the, the headline suggested, it was not about anybody fighting back. It was, against, it was about the poor police officers getting assaulted. Uh, the New York Daily News, a tabloid at the time, reported at the Stonewall riots calling them, uh, or the headline for it was, Homo Nest Raided, Queen Bees Are Stinging Mad. Uh, you know, so they made a pun about it, and, and it was sort of teasing the, 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 the rioters who took place. Uh, even... Allegedly sympathetic outlets like the Village Voice, which was a, a, a liberal newspaper for Greenwich Village, that part of New York City where the Stonewall uh, Inn was, uh, they uh, reported uh, on the riots by calling uh, by talking about dancing faggots and the Sunday fag follies. So mainstream press reporting of the riots was at best completely. Uh, uh, ignorant of the, the, the sort of any liberationist uh, discourse about it, and at worst, outright homophobic. Really crucially, though, there were other voices that began to be heard, other voices that publicized news of these riots. And these came from outlets that were run by queer people, in fact, run by uh, gay rights activists at the time. Uh, one of the... Uh, uh, organizers for uh, or in the homophile movement, a man I mentioned earlier named Dick Leish, he produced a pamphlet uh, that reported on the uh, the events that happened and made a call for action in it. And it was titled The Hairpin Drop Heard Around the World. Uh, this is sort of a, a double pun here. It was a pun on the old headline, The Shot Heard Around the World, which was about the, you know, the 
firing on the main or something. Uh, but it was also uh, a play on words because dropping a hairpin was a way of subtly indicating uh, in public that one was homosexual. Um, and uh, once you had dropped all your pair, uh, all your hairpins, that meant you would let your hair down. And so you could you know, sort of relax and be yourself. Uh, so there was that uh, pamphlet that went out, uh, there were efforts by the Mattachine Society of New York City, the local, the largest local gay rights organization, to call attention to this, to uh, drum up support and sympathy among uh, you know gay people, among lesbians in New York City, to call attention to the fact that there had been a raid and that the you know, the people at the Stonewall Inn had fought back for once. They had actually uh, put the police on the run uh, all night uh, uh, in June, uh, all night in uh, June of 1969. Uh, and it was part of the reason uh, or part of the reason why these riots went on as long as they did is that the word got out about them. People knew about these riots and so they came back. They, everybody came to the Stonewall Inn on the second night to see the damage and they stayed there for the second night and rioted again. And then they came back a third night and rioted a third time. And maybe even more importantly, the reporting didn't stop there. The effort to remember what had happened that night continued in the weeks and months afterwards. And it was because of that effort to keep this momentum going, to keep people remembering that the riots had happened and that queer people had pushed back against the police for once, that led to the efforts to commemorate this raid. And it was that commemoration that turned into the Christopher Street Day Parade that was held exactly one year after the riots in uh, June, uh, June, June 29th of 1970. That was the first gay pride parade in history. And it's the pride parade that still goes on in the last week of June every year in New York City and that spread across the world starting the yearly gay pride movements uh, or the yearly gay pride parades that um, now happen all over the world. So so from this sort of single action, this thing very quickly bloomed. I, I had no idea that it was sort of feeding back to itself as it was happening. So the reportage was informing the event as it was still going on. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, was there any significant backlash to this kind of growing movement? So uh, there was a backlash in a manner of speaking, but it did not or it didn't come from the place that I suspect most people would, would imagine. Uh the first real evidence of a backlash to the Stonewall riots came from other gay people. It came from the more conservative elements in uh, LGBT activism at the time, the homophile movement, who saw this as a disaster. They were horrified at a riot breaking out that would that you know that queer people had rioted. They had thrown bottles at the police. That the rioters themselves had been people that uh, these homophile activists didn't want associated with them. They were drag queens. They were they were street kids. They were transvestites. Uh, they were the people that were so, uh, you know, lacking in dignity and in respect in polite society that the calls that they were making, the homophile activists were making for uh, greater respect for, homo for homosexual people, uh, they would never, uh, it would never gain them respectability if these calls for homosexual rights were associated with these terribly disrespectful uh, drag queens and, and flame queens. So the immediate backlash to the civil riots came from these more conservative uh, 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 homophile elements. That, I think it's fair to say, trailed off after a while when it became clear that this really had become a flashpoint for greater activism. Uh, in terms of anti-homosexual 
uh, rights backlash to the riots. That took a little longer to come together. Um, in the city itself, the police and the political organization uh, didn't exactly back off, but they didn't clamp down uh, in a sort of counter-raid um, the way that you know, one might have expected uh, to, to happen in, in another city or in another country. Um, but there wasn't any great advancement of LGBT rights uh, municipally uh, for many years. But over the next 10 years, oh, through, the, through the 1970s, there were advancements that were made in uh, anti-discrimination legislation in New York and in many other places across the United States. Um, there were successes in uh, getting homosexuality removed from the diagnostic statistical manual uh, that doctors use to, to, to diagnose or psychologists use to, to diagnose mental disorders. They got homosexuality removed from that in 1973. So, after Stonewall, there were advancements for gay rights, but then a backlash to those advancements began. And by the time you got to the late 1970s, there were some very well-organized backlashes to LGBT rights. Um, most prominently in, the, prominently in the United States, the Anita Bryant campaign, uh, the Save Our Children campaign in Florida uh, in the 1970s, uh, actually got an anti-discrimination ordinance repealed uh, that had been passed a few years earlier. Uh, similar campaigns, what you know, colluding campaigns, uh, organized to get uh, other anti-discrimination ordinances repealed. They uh, quite prominently uh, managed to get a proposition, a public vote. Um, orchestrated in California, uh, something called Proposition 6 that would have banned uh, all gay people from working as teachers and in public offices uh, in the state of California. Uh, this uh, campaign was uh, another flashpoint in LGBT rights. It was mercifully defeated at the polls, uh, but it was a very intense, very scary moment for LGBT activists because it looked like it was going to pass for a while. Uh, these were the uh, some of the events that were depicted in the 2008 movie Milk, um, which uh, is actually pretty good movie uh, depicting them. So that backlash to anti uh, that backlash to um, Stonewall wasn't really specific to Stonewall, but the events that Stonewall initiated and that picked up speed in the years afterwards did eventually provo provoke a backlash that really came to a fore in the late 1970s. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. If you want to celebrate Stonewall as a moment of liberation, and I think we should, then we should be clear about what it was people were being liberated from or trying to liberate themselves from in June of 1969. Are there any other events that you think uh, have been overshadowed by Stonewall that are just as important, perhaps elsewhere in the world? There's always a danger in over... Uh, investing one moment with too much importance. Uh, I've already talked about how there was a long tale of, uh, or buildup rather, of LGBT, of, of homophile rights activists in the 1950s and 60s. And to be honest, without that, uh, I don't think the Stonewall riots could have been a flashpoint moment. They needed that infrastructure of activists and of uh, letters and, and of publications that existed to be able to seize on a moment like this once it came about. Um, although, to be honest, at the same time, there were other moments that 
frankly, should have been just as much of a flashpoint for resistance, but weren't. Uh, there was a, a raid on the Stonewall Inn earlier in the week. There were raids on other bars in New York during the 1960s. Uh, you know, there, there was a, a raid on a bar in uh, New York City in 1970 called the Snake Pit Bar. That didn't, you know, was, it wasn't a flashpoint. There were raids in other cities and other bars. The, the um, Compton's Cafeteria Riot in San Francisco in, I think it was 1966. The New Year's Ball Raid in San Francisco as well. Uh, the Black Cat Raid in Los Angeles. Uh, all of these were other moments where queer people were harassed by the police and pushed back, but it didn't become uh, a major flashpoint moment. Whether or not it's – those are moments that are being overlooked too much because of the emphasis on Stonewall is maybe a matter that's up for debate. I think it is important to note that there were other moments like this though. Um, if we expand things a little more broadly, look around the world or look at the broader sweep of LGBT history, um, big flashy moments like Stonewall get a lot of attention. But there's just as much of a reason to focus on the dull, unremarkable, but really important work of organizing and petitioning and getting people elected and pushing back, you know, protesting in smaller but more consistent ways uh, in the years after Stonewall and before, but also but, but in the years especially after Stonewall, that I think is just as important for understanding why LGBT civil rights made the advances it did in the years after Stonewall. Uh, it's really impossible to tell the story of LGBT rights activism, um, its successes and indeed uh, its setbacks without talking about HIV AIDS. Um, Stonewall certainly set off a new uh, tempo and, and a new period of LGBT activism. But by you know, in, in the 1980s when HIV emerged um, – in the gay communities in uh, New York City and, and San Francisco and then kind of metastasized into this uh, epidemic and then global pandemic. That created a whole new stream of urgency and of activism um, with slightly different objectives, uh, different targets, um, different requirements uh, for organizing for activism that, uh, than the ones that were initiated by the Stonewall riots. Uh, those are just as crucial for understanding what LGBT civil rights are, for understanding the journey that they took, uh, you know, forwards and backwards, for the advances that were made and for the very, very significant and serious setbacks that occurred along the way as well. I mean, Stonewall has international resonance. Um, in other countries, whenever there's been moments of resistance against the state and especially against police by uh, sexual minorities, gender minorities, inevitably it is called that country's Stonewall. Uh, but at the same time, many countries did not have a Stonewall moment. Uh, the United Kingdom, for instance, uh, you know, you asked me earlier, you know, preparing for this interview, was there a, a, a moment in the UK that was like Stonewall? And the quick answer to that is no. Uh, there wasn't really a, a great big moment of a riot against the police in the, the image of uh, of a Stonewall riot. Rather, and maybe more interestingly or, or just as importantly, there was a slow progression of activism, of lobbying uh, people in government to push for law reform. You know, it was called – there was an organization in the UK called the Homosexual Law Reform Society, which eventually got the government to produce a report called the Wolfington Report that recommended the decriminalization of homosexuality and that 
after 10 years, did lead to a partial decriminalization or at least a decriminalization in certain uh, situations. Uh, so in terms of overlooking uh, or, or you know, Stonewall sucking up all the oxygen in the atmosphere from other moments, to an extent, yes, but only insofar as it's a very spectacular moment that kind of commands attention. I think there are other moments that are important in the United States and elsewhere for uh, the advancement of the rights of sexual and gender minorities. Um, those stories, I think, do get told. Maybe they aren't quite as flashy as Stonewall, but they are being told. There are wonderful historians working on these, uh, these sorts of histories all over the United Kingdom, all over the world. Do you think that Stonewall has been misremembered subsequently? And to what extent has that been sort of almost a deliberate process? So it's, again, one of the, th- the remarkable things about Stonewall is that it was remembered at all. Uh, those riots that I just mentioned about, you know, the, the Compton's Cafeteria riot and the Snake Pit Bar, you know, chances are good. Most of the people listening to this and you probably didn't, uh, had never heard of them before. Uh, so the fact that Stonewall is remembered at all is you know, paradoxically, almost a kind of misremembrance. It is an exception to the rule of these sorts of, uh, you know, events from the the mid-20th century. Nevertheless, that we remember Stonewall uh, has created a kind of um, mythology about it as well. And there have been a couple of different kinds of of misremembering in that regard. Uh, One, I've I've already uh, already alluded to, this uh, effort to... Uh, or rather the the way that Stonewall revealed a tension in uh, gay rights activism between uh, those with a more urgent call, sort of radical activists who really wanted to push uh, uh, against police brutality and to to push against all kinds of inequalities in American society, and those who were more moderate, who were assimilationist, who wanted to proceed more cautiously uh, to achieve more lasting reform. So there was an effort by both sides to kind of spin Stonewall in their uh, uh, in their image. Radical activists want to see it as a, a moment of of great uh, disruption, of, of really pushing back against authority. Assimilationists want to see it more as a moment when a, f- uh, a flashpoint came together that allowed the more durable, moderate advancements to be made. Um, there were other efforts to spin Stonewall or, or rather the efforts of t- – uh, there were other stories told about Stonewall that tended to emphasize or de-emphasize certain elements. Um, kind of connected to that effort to, to make it a more moderate uh, uh, event uh, or to portray it in more moderate uh, ways, the – role of trans people and the role of uh, people from uh, ethnic minority communities, especially African-Americans and Puerto Ricans, uh, their role or the role of people from these communities in the Stonewall riots tended to get elided in a lot of the early reporting. Um, Admittedly, uh, LGBT historians themselves didn't do this quite so badly, Um, but especially in mainstream reporting and maybe in mainstream collective memory, the uh, role of 
uh, many different minority communities, rather than just sort of middle-class white gay men, uh, tended to get downplayed for many years. Uh, there's been a very uh, substantial and I would say successful push against that in the years since then. Um, and if anything, some of the uh, trans people and some of the uh, African-American people who took part in the riots are some of the most emblematic ones now. We think of Marsha P. Johnson uh, or Sylvia Rivera, um, you know, who, who are kind of... Uh, if not role models, then at least, as I said, emblems of the riot um, in a way that uh, maybe, I don't know, Craig, Ro Craig Rodwell isn't, who was also there and had a role to play, but um, maybe doesn't uh, carry the same uh, emblematic role as they once did. Why do you think those figures were um, pushed to one side of the narrative for so long? Well, racism in LGBT communities is just as prominent as it is in any other slice of American uh, life. So part of it was just uh, the, the casual racism of deciding to emphasize or to de-emphasize the role of uh, people from uh, ethnic minority communities. Um, again, I think it had to do with the desire to make it a less radical seeming event to portray Stonewall as part of a, a, long, and a long and respectable march of uh, rights for, for gay people uh, through the late 20th century. Um, I think too that the, there was an element of, of access to, to the resources of telling history. Uh, you know, the, the, a lot of the people who got to tell their stories quickly, and a lot of the people who got to, uh, you know, become historians or to to you know get on media programs like this to sort of talk, talk about uh, about gay history for the last fifty years, have tended to be people who uh, got better educations or who had access to these resources through uh, you know whatever social capital they had, uh, and those tended to be people from white communities, and they tended to uh, tell the story from their perspectives. Um, and maybe it's a, a sign of greater uh, awareness of that that, that uh, has led to, to a sort of correction uh, and, a, and an inclusion of uh, these much more diverse voices in telling the story of the Stonewall riots. How then would you like people to think about this event and this wider history? I'd bring this back to that tension between the radical interpretations of Stonewall and the more assimilationist ones. I suppose if I had my way, it would be, or if I had my, my soapbox, which I do, <laughs> I'd like people to acknowledge and embrace the radicalism that's inherent in the Stonewall riots. Uh, if you want to celebrate Stonewall as a moment of liberation, and I think we should, then we should be clear about what it was people were being liberated from or trying to liberate themselves from in June of 1969. Yes, it was homophobia in a general societal sense, uh, but it was also a wider system. It was a regime of state-sanctioned violence against uh, queer people, but also just of state-sanctioned violence generally, uh, that at that moment was directed against queer people. Now, in the years since, we've been very good about lessening um, – we've accomplished a great deal in getting that violence against queer people lessened, but the capacity for violence by the state is still there. Uh, and its capacity to be directed against marginalized community still exists. And indeed, marginalized communities in the United States, in many countries, still feel that 
oppression, still feel the, uh, or still are the targets of that violence. In fact, LGBT people are still the targets of that violence. Despite all the accomplishments that have been made, uh, the kinds of violence that are, uh, that are visited upon LGBT people um, because of their sexuality or, in, uh, or just generally by the state still exists. You know, Stonewall was a specific reaction to specific circumstances, but it was also an expression of a deeper impulse that's very much relevant today. Anger against a system that uses the extraordinary powers of, you know, coercion and of setting norms and of the legitimate use of force that the state has to target and harass people who are at the margins of society because they think they can get away with it. Uh, celebrating Stonewall, I think, or it ought to mean... Acknowledging that for a few nights in 1969, one of the easiest and least sympathetic targets of state violence fought back. Uh, and that today, even if the same groups, same groups aren't being targeted in the same way anymore, there is still just as much of a reason to fight back. Um, the effort to make the state and the power structures of our society treat vulnerable people with respect is a fight that is still very much underway and regrettably it's a fight that can still be lost. So we can, as a society, gain power from referring to history where this has happened and had a real impact and apply it in some way to 2019? Yes, and to remember that it's still relevant today. The Stonewall riots happened in the past, but the reasons that the, and, and the reasons that they happened were specific to the conditions of 1969. But at the same time, the reasons that people riot against police brutality, people push back against discrimination, uh, whether official or unofficial, you know, uh, you know, sanctioned and institutionalized, or just uh, quotidian and informal. Those reasons still exist today. Reading about Stonewall, hearing about Stonewall, understanding the events of the Stonewall riots, I think can remind people about the ways that injustices are still uh, visited upon uh, people today uh, and why everybody has a part in, everybody can have a part in pushing back against it if they choose to. That was Chris Parks. For more on the Stonewall Riots, check out issue 16 of BBC World Histories magazine. You can find out more details on our website. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Thursday when I'll be speaking to Janet Nelson about the medieval king Charlemagne. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.